Praise be to God. As we open up Romans 5 this morning, as we dive in, I wonder what theme you pulled out, what the Holy Spirit's done in your heart. If you're like me, reading this, this chapter for years, it was Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And you went on to the next verse, chapter 6 in the Romans Road. And I always had that wonder and that thought of, well, how did we... We started with all have sinned in, in the Romans road. But what happened before that? Who were we? Why were we made? And, and why do we just jump right in? And, and there's always this weight and this wondering of what are we going to do with our guilt? If, we, if we're honest, at some level there's this reality of our failings, our coming up short, the things that we knew we should do and we didn't do. And then there's the things we, we knew we shouldn't do and we did those things and there's this, there's this tension and we see that guilt comes from within and shame comes from without. So shame is what people put on you. Guilt is that own conscience and that really the, the Holy Spirit drawing you to see, hey, you are guilty and you're going to pay for this. So there's going to be a consequence to everything you've said, thought, and done. And oftentimes we, we get hurt by that because people either shame and guilt us into things and manipulate and and when we're looking at really today how how Paul presents the gospel and says look at what the gospel in its own unique way helps us move from feeling of guilt dealing with guilt and then healing from guilt and how the gospel reveals and removes that guilt and then leaves us with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which sometimes can be confusing because we're used to feeling guilty, but now we don't because when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So our guilt must be and ought to be cleansed. So we see the first, the feeling of guilt. Before we jump into that, we see the gospel. We, we, we put it down to summarize it this way. God, the creator, by grace, sent his son, Jesus, into the world, and he lived a perfect life, free from sin, died for sinners, rose from the dead, and now offers all who believe eternal life and a special place in his kingdom, living life to the fullest with the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we focus on that good news that we have the Holy Spirit, we're promised not just the, the power and the purpose to follow what God's planned for us, but we have this inheritance and place in his kingdom. So where is there this feeling of guilt? Why did that happen? And, and what are we dealing with here? In chapter 5, the way to no longer feel guilty is not by just denying the idea of guilt, but to face it and ask God to forgive you because it's the reality of what you've said, thought, or done against God. John Stott, in a commentary on Romans, says it seems clear from this first 11 verses, the main mark of a justified believer is joy. So if you're a believer in Christ and you read in verse 2, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Yeah, I can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's awesome. We get to do that, friends. And then verse 3, but 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Like, wait a minute, Paul, hold up. Like, we're Americans. We don't, we don't suffer any. I don't know if you knew that. We don't do that. We have cruises. We have massage chairs. We just go to Costco. They feed you for free samples, and they got massage chairs. We don't. Suffering? No, that's not. Um, we avoid that. We isolate from that. We insulate from it. What are you talking about? And so often I, I've read scripture just bouncing around to these truths and realizing, well, there's a lot around the truth that Paul's unpacking for us. The, the suffering that Jesus encountered, sinlessly loving, serving, and yet the suffering he encountered, there's something there that we get to walk and partner with Jesus in his suffering. We join in that, and all of a sudden there's another layer there, a relational connection that Paul's talking about suffering for doing good, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we see that he's saying, hey, the gospel actually helps us look at suffering in a way that no other worldview does. It's not stoicism. Paul does not say we rejoice even though we're suffering. It's a really hard time, but I'm just going to be joyful because Jesus, you know, God's word, we should rejoice even though we're suffering. That's not what Paul's saying. It's really close. It might, it's confusing, but it's not stoicism because stoicism says we rejoice even though we suffer. Like it's a bummer we're suffering. We're just going to rejoice because seasons, right? Rains, it pours, whatever. But a stoic with that worldview and mindset, they say, don't let it get to you. Just endure. And then it makes you harder. And then it makes you uh, puffed up and proud. Because the result of that worldview is thinking, well, really? You're on food stamps? Go get a job. Why don't you have, you've heard it before. Just go get a job. Okay, you have more time, get five jobs. Then you can afford, like, just work harder. In, in, our, in our Western world, it's pull yourself up on your bootstraps. Just take care of this. Work harder. Read more. Just stop sinning. Just don't do that. Like, yeah, endure, but then you can rise above it. And then you look down on people who are struggling, maybe with less than you had to struggle with. And you're like, really? What a pansy. Suck it up. Try harder. And that's not what, what Paul is saying. He's saying what God's poured into us allows us to have joy through the suffering. Because we know what suffering can do. It's going to produce endurance. And endurance character and character hope. And it's not masochism. On the other hand, Paul is not saying that we rejoice for our sufferings, that suffering's the end. You've heard people say, oh, you see Christians rejoice, saying, oh, I'm suffering. Woe is me. I, I, my, my front row parking, lot, parking spot in and out was taken. I'll have to suffer for the Lord. Oh, oh, man, I've done this horrible thing. And with the age of kind of accountability groups, it was like, hey, hey I... I, I Looked at porn, I know I shouldn't have, so I have to buy everyone coffee. You know, it's kind of masochism. It's like, hey, there's punishment. And that was a cool thing for, hey, we've got to be in accountability groups. It's like, this is just a way to make people feel bad. And then everyone gets to benefit when they sin. Like, how is this? I'm not, I remember doing that and being like, that's not really how the gospel works. Because when Jesus comes, he doesn't say, hey, one camping trip, Mount of Transfiguration, got some guys got to see me. My glory revealed, and then you couldn't cast the demon out. I guess he's buying fish tacos for everyone because you, you failed. You couldn't cast the demon out. Now there's a consequence. That's, that's masochism as we rejoice for our sufferings. And, oh, I suffered, so praise God through my suffering. And that's, 
That's where we see the abuse and the manipulation of trying to think about what, what Paul's saying here outside of the gospel. Because what guilt is, is that moral accountability. It's that reality that you should be paying for the record of all the wrongs you've done. Guilt is the sense that my sins have a being of their own. That guilt is the sense that there's a moral accounting and an objective record. It's not, it's not simply a feeling or emotion. It's an objective reality that because we've said, thought, and done things against God, we sinned against God and against other people. And there's going to be a real consequence coming. And we look at this wonderful but also terrible movie, Schindler's List. Schindler is a German industrialist, super wealthy man who had a change of heart during World War II, and he made himself poor, using all of his wealth to bribe German officials to save, as it's been counted, 1,200 Jews from death in the concentration camps. And at the end of the movie, detailing his, his story, he's about to leave as the war is over, and he looks at his car, and he, he realizes if he had changed his heart sooner, he could have sold his car and saved hundreds, maybe even thousands more lives. Like, what kind of car was he driving? That's a lot of... But it's not the way of guilt. It's not this, this, hey, you should feel bad. And it's not saying, which our world says, hey, Schindler, just don't really... Actually, a lot of people don't value Jews' lives. It's okay. And you can save your car and save your, all your money. It's fine. It's a feeling or it's, a, it's an ideology. But really, we don't say that. It's a record. It's a moral accounting. And when we come to grips with that guilt it changes how we view people it changes how we view our talents and our treasure it changes what we're living for because guilt is the sense that our past is present with us our past is present with us and we can't get rid of it there's no amount of good we can do today that would outweigh the bad of tomorrow or erase it it's always there and like arnold schwarzenegger says i'll be back that guilt plagues us. I don't know if anyone else driving down the road gets visited. It's like, wow, 30 years ago I did, okay. Ah, that was one pathetic loser. No offense or anything, Brandon. The guilt's right there. And, and it's, it's, there's nothing we can do. And we're going to face account. And you read in scripture, you're going to give account for every careless word you said. And those of you that are older than I, that's, you've had a lot more words. Those that are younger, watch out, students. You're going to give account for every word. So at lunch, I know you're a little hungry or hangry, but be careful. Things might come out you're going to have to give account for. You said what? You did what? God looks at this problem that we have, problem that not just we have, but we're his creation, so he has it too. Because when he created, he said, let there be light. And he didn't sit around going, okay, all right. But it's interesting when, when you look at this reality, you might be saying, well, where is this guilt coming from? And I've read chapter 5, I don't see the word guilt in here. Is this one of those Hebrew or Greek? No, it's right here in, in verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When God has the absolute power and he says let there be light and then instantly there's light and he says let there be life and there's life and says let there be sky and there's sky but God doesn't say let there be forgiveness and then everyone just gets to go to heaven he doesn't do that because he he's holy and he's loving and because he's both holy and loving 
He doesn't just say, hey, don't worry about it. I know you, you did horrible things, but just come on, it's fine. He has to punish the sin. He has to be just. And we think about this because it's a very important for us to see because no matter how long we, we prolong the guilt or push it aside and try and not focus on it, it's there. And in human terms, with a human judge, if someone brings a convicted rapist before and says, you know what, he said he's sorry, I'm the judge, we're just going to forgive him because it's a lot cheap, we'll just let him back on the street. It's like, no, our society would revolt and want his job and have him pay the price because as a judge, he should be protecting the society from people who are convicted, not just saying, oh, I forgive, it's fine. There has to be justice. And our guilt has a being of its own. Just like a physical account that will end up being due. And when you jump off a balcony careening towards the earth, gravity is reality. I was on the top of Hoover Dam and saw that little concave and my brain always goes to like skateboarding or biking. I'm like, I could ride down this. That'd be kind of extreme and kind of crazy. And then if you're like me, then that's where you go. And then you go, well, actually, I am a little afraid of heights and I don't even know why I'm here. Looking down that, that's terrifying, and my knees go weak. And I'm like, how did I go from both extremes? Welcome to my brain. It's like, I want to drop in on this. And then it's like, that's insane. I don't even know if I want to parachute, like paraglide off this thing. This is crazy. Because there's reality. Half the time I'm in dream, impossibilities are possible land, and the other half I'm like, this is terrifying. I, if, I, if I fall off, I'm going to hit the ground and die. And that's the reality. That's our guilt coming in. We live in the dreamland, everything's fine, and then all of a sudden, reality hits, and it's like, yeah, I am falling towards the earth. And the older we get, the more our, our bodies slow down, we realize, oh, we, aren't, we are finite, we're not infinite. We will have to meet our maker one day, and what are we going to do about that? And because God does not accept evil, ever, he has to take care of it. Either he punishes us, which is the only really logical, justifiable, they're, they're sinners, so they're guilty, and yet God does something that no religion does and says, actually, I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to send my son. Because guilt is not just a feeling. Sins make up a moral record. Truth, values, they're not movable. They're, they're, they're stationary. It's like hitting a brick wall. You realize it's not moving, and that's the truth, no matter what you think. And so we see that the feeling of guilt wells up in us, and then we have to deal with it. So how are we going to deal with guilt? How does the gospel help us deal with guilt? The answer is right here, and it's actually all throughout Scripture. Every part of the Bible where God's dealing with this idea and showing us from Abraham where he, he says, look, you're going to take these animals, you're going to cut them in two, and when you don't fulfill the covenant, I will, and may it be done to me what happened to these animals, ripped and torn in two. And God says, that's a principle, and we're going to see it again with two goats. One is going to be killed, and the other, all the sins of the community are going to be put on the goat's head, and that's the scapegoat led to a cliff in Leviticus 16 and, and, and killed. Again, showing there's a substitution. Only they didn't realize that God would be the self-substitution. That's the heart of the gospel. We see it right here. You see, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. 
He just sums up the entire Christian faith John Stott does here in a sentence. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for men. I don't know if you ever played sports, but the substitution was always either well received when you're exhausted and tired, or you're like, it's about time, put me in, coach. And, the, and God was waiting until the right time and said, okay, Jesus is going to go in. He's going to take our place and pay the debt that we owe and die the death we deserve. We see the relevance of the cross and the wisdom for the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. That's a bad substitute. Like fourth quarter, you're down by infinity amount of sins. You're guilty. And we're like, hey, I'll put me in. I got this. And everyone's like, don't, what are you doing? Stay on the bench. You don't, you're not qualified to run this thing. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. You don't even know how to find the light switch in a dark room. Like, it's going to go bad. Like, don't try and substitute yourself for God. The essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. What does that mean? Breaking his rules. Anything we say, think, and do against God. We're done. We're guilty. And that guilt keeps plugging us. By accident or intentionality. If we're created by the creator God, then we belong to him and we owe him everything. And when you make decisions on how you're going to live your life, use the talents and gifts and resources he's given you, how much time are you sitting before God, letting him influence and direct your steps? He has authority over you. But we substitute ourselves in his place by just saying, hey God, why don't you sit this one out? I got this. I know you called for a run, but I'm doing a pass. It's going to, it's touchdown, game over. It's like, you, we haven't completed a pass all game. You're going to, yeah, I got it. Right. You're going to substitute yourself for God. No one would ever tell me, I think I'm, I got this. I don't need God. Oftentimes we run to him when there's problems, acknowledging I substituted myself for God. It didn't work out. I'm going to resub, put him back in the fourth. He'll fix it. And then we'll pull him out and I'll take it from there. When you think about it that way, it's like, yeah, I've, I've done that, and maybe this morning or yesterday. Like, we're guilty. And yet, we're okay in playing God and, and being the imposter, but yet we're not okay with police officers being, with imposter police officers running around our society. We're not okay with that. Because when you need authority, when you need someone to help and support, you need someone that actually has the authority. If there's an imposter, someone in, in being an, impersonating an officer, they should be put in prison. But yet we're okay with people just substituting themselves for God, or we're okay with it ourselves. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. See, man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. The, the, the point of what Paul's driving here is saying, look at how you were full of guilt and shame and God saw that and he, while holding you accountable, was still sovereign and made a way for you to be saved. He paid, he suffered all that stuff you intrinsically know you deserve to pay for, he chose to self-substitute in your place. That's what is the law of self-substitution. God made him sin who knew no sin 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians. When we're in Christ, like we talked about last week, we boast in him. Now we get all of his riches and we're in him with all the wonder and glory that he had is now in us. And there's, there's one story that really brings us to see this. I remember as a middle schooler thinking, oh my goodness, is that, does that dad need counseling? It, it's the story I heard years ago of a man who lived with his family in kind of mountainous region where there's train tracks. And at one point the tracks went over a, a waterway that, that had a bridge that would open and close. And obviously growing up around here, we didn't see anything like that, you know, like our bridges washed out in the winter, like by Paloma Creek, and they had to put the water culvert in, and then the, the, the DG again. It's, I was like, oh, they have bridges that move? That's awesome. And I'm like sucked into the story, going, this, this operator, that's cool. There's little, you know, gears and all that stuff. And he's like, and the, and the dad had a son and took him to work with him one day. I was like, that's not good, because there's probably bears or like mountain lions or something in the forest or in the mountains. And, the da- and then the story goes that <clears throat> the, the boat goes through, so he opens the bridge for the boat, and as the boat's going, he hears a train, and he has to lower the bridge for this train full of people so that the train won't crash into the bridge and die. And the boy was playing around the gears, and the ball went into the gears, so the boy goes to get his ball, and his foot gets stuck as the, brain, the train operator's lowering the bridge, and as you're on the edge of your seat, Why? Because there's nothing more dramatic than that. A father and a son in danger. And there's, there's many films and stories like that. And it's, it's fictional. But as you've heard the story, and maybe you've seen the, the movie that they made, and you see all the, the faces of the people and, and the family dynamics and the stories, uh, as the, the story goes, the train operator lowers the bridge and kills his son. And that, that wrecked me for so many years. And then I read scripture and I read the gospel and I'm like, but that poor son, he just wanted to get his ball. Jesus knew how messed up we were and worthless we are and how guilty we are. And he said, I want them. Like if it adds way more weight. It's not just this emotional manipulative story that pastors can use to, to hey, I'm not really good at, I'm not going to talk about the power of God. I'm just going to try and do this. It's like, wait, but Jesus chose the unlovable, the people that were against him, that were his enemy. You know, it's, it's always a, a unique situation in the world because we hear headlines of Ukraine and people put blue and yellow flags, which I'm like, dude, back in high school, I had blue and yellow everywhere, head to toe. That's my colors, man. I had the puka shell necklace, rip curl yellow. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I just heard my friend doing missionary work in a country I can't mention, but Russia's been there for decades doing what they've been doing in Ukraine, and no one talks about it. That means the entire world's been in war, and and some of you know from different economies and countries where things have been way worse than what the news is reporting in Ukraine, and it's been happening, and no one's talking, and now we have a new headline of Israel and Palestine and Hamas, and there's so much destruction and so many innocent lives. And when you read scripture, God says, I want everyone to be saved. But it's a lot easier if we're, if we're rooting for the home team and there's the visitors and it's us versus them. And that's what the media is constantly driving, an us versus them mentality. And then you read scripture and we have to go back to Genesis when God made man and woman in his image, he created them. And he wants all to be saved. So when we pray and when we look at the world in carnage and tor- tormented by their guilt, 
Instead of asking God to forgive them, they deal with their guilt through anger or hatred or us versus them and tribal mentality. And we see the burden and we see Jesus look at the world and go, you know what? They're enemies of me. I'm going to go die for them. They're enemies of me. And they keep saying, thinking, doing, and hurting me and my creation. I'm going to go pay the price for them. It adds so much more weight to the cost for him to purchase us, to save us. And the whole burden we see in verse 7 and 8, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's this whole complex of we're born into sin. We want to, that's all we're predisposed to do. And Jesus says, that means I need to get down there, serve them, die for them, exchange their hard heart with a heart of flesh that will beat for me. Done. Willfully choosing to do so. Jesus Christ was the only person in history who absolutely freely, without any constraint, walked in, poured out his life on the cross for no other reason other than his love for us. We see the self-substitution of God because we put ourselves where he deserved to be, but he himself completely, freely, voluntarily put himself where we deserve to be. One theologian put it this way, in a sense, Jesus walked to the cross, took his soul in one hand and his body in the other and tore himself apart. Absolutely freely, personally choosing to do that, Jesus is the only person in history who ever used death because he died when it had no claim on him at all. When you think about it, he existed eternally past, present, and future, and he willfully chose to be in a human that was finite to die for our benefit. There's no benefit to him. He willfully chose to serve you and sacrifice by dying the death we deserved. Jesus is the only person who ever voluntarily died while we were yet sinners, while we were against him. People die for their friends, sometimes people say. And we have some of those stories. People dying for their friends are not really dying for their friends, though, because they're dying themselves. They just shortened up their lifespan, but they're dying still. Jesus never had to die. He willfully chose that for us. Jesus didn't have a period where he was going to die. While we were sinners, he chose to die. That's so unique and so powerful to see that he deals with our guilt. When he says we're forgiven, we need to unload our guilt on him. When he says we're valuable, we need to believe him. When he says we're provided for, we need to stop worrying God's efforts are the strongest when our efforts are useless. When we're facing the reality that we can't play any part in our salvation. There's nothing good that we can do apart from him. Then he can step in and he says, okay. As John the Baptist said, may I decrease that you may increase. And that brings us to the, how does the gospel heal us from guilt? When grace moves in, Guilt moves out. When we see God's grace move in, our guilt moves out. Since therefore, in verse 9, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved 
by him from the wrath of God. Satan's delight is to tell us that he's got us and he will keep us. And at that moment, I can't go back to God. But if we confess our sin, God's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and any sin that we've done, if we remain in that sin, it invites the demons. It says, hey, come on. I know God owns the house, but there's free room right here. Come hang out with me. And then you wonder why there's, there's attacks and difficulties. Well, you've invited the enemy in, but God owns it. Repent of your sin and God forgives you of the sin and then you can evict the enemy. So that the gospel heals us from the guilt, but the enemy and Satan still comes back and knows, hey, if I can get him feeling guilty again. Say, wait, we moved past feeling. Well, let's go back there for a minute. What do we actually have to do to use what God has done in our hearts so we are healed from guilt and we live guilt-free lives? What do we do? Anyone here who's believed or not yet believed, this, this is for you. Plenty of Christians I know, I see are scared to death because there's still this guilt, this wondering if, did Jesus really pay it all? Maybe there's a little bit of tip left I need to take care of. Maybe he, didn't, he covered the bill, but the tip still I can, what's left what about my sin in 10 years? Is he really going to pay for that too? There's still guilt there. You're not as healed of the guilt as you should be. How do you heal yourselves of guilt? How do you understand that he paid for you so that there's no more guilt? You've been justified by his blood. How much more will you be saved by him from the wrath to come? He already saved you. So there's that judgment day. It's good. It's going to be easy. You're like, yep. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. Perfect. That fire of judgment that Paul talks about in Corinth, it burns away all the selfish things you've done and, that, and it purifies and reveals all the gold and, and silver and the stuff you used. The imperishable, the eternal rewards are revealed. So first, you're healed of guilt to the degree you grasp the magnitude of your sin. So how are we healed from, healed from guilt? To the degree we understand and we, we, un, we look at sin and go, that's what God saved me from. So when you think about Jesus, he, he was similar to Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He was always going around, going off by himself and, and crying and weeping because he, he constantly was in touch with how holy and just, and, but yet loving, and he saw people running away from him. In refusing the good news. And C.S. Lewis puts it in a unique way. Like on a freezing cold, snowy day on the slopes. It, the gospel is like a cup of hot chocolate. Which I really connect with this illustration. Because going on dates, especially in college, my wife and I would save up a little money and I'd take her to Starbucks. And, but they, I had to stop going there. They don't make the drinks hot enough for me. Like I like them boiling hot. And, and she would just sip it a little bit. And my drink would be gone by the time I turned away from the counter. And I throw it away. And it's just, I got to drink it while it's hot. You know, they barely make it hot, even extra hot. And C.S. Lewis gave us this analogy. It's like a cup of hot chocolate on that cold, snowy day that's too hot to hold, too hot to taste, but you can drink it. I'm like, yes, that's, that's true. You can't just hold the gospel. Ooh, this kind of warmed my hands up. Thank you. And put it down. You can't just sip it. You have to drink it all down and let it just warm you up from the inside out. I think that's a beautiful I image. Someone once said that the gospel is like a log and if you have one part of it and one part's on the ground and you're trying to, to throw it, it's too hard. It'll fall on you. 
maybe construction guys, it's like a four by eight sheet of plywood. You know, it's awkward enough. You just have to grab the whole sheet and throw it up. There's no way to kind of rock it and then just kind of from the, you just have to have the whole thing and throw the log. And you have to grab hold of the whole gospel and let the weight of it fall on you. There are all sorts of metaphors and illustration, but we see that God demonstrates his love for us while we were his enemy. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That means God's love is demonstrated to the degree that we see our sin. That we see how great our sin is. You see what Paul's saying is, look how loving God is. When you were a sinner, when you were against God and all you did was disobey him, he showed you his love by dying for you. So until you're... See yourself fully guilty of sin. Christ's love is not demonstrable. You can't see it. You can't understand it. These illustrations are lost on you. See, another way, Jesus said it better than anything, I think, is I was talking with a student years ago when I was in youth ministry and working on communicating, and he told me, he's like, hey, remember that story you told about the prostitute that came to saw Jesus? I was like, What? Where's this going? He's like, I love stories. You love you st- tell stories. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really good at storytelling. And then I was like, oh, I'm actually, I just borrowed one of Jesus' stories, and that's the only one you remember. He's like, yeah, I don't remember anything you said, just that story. Like, yeah, sounds a lot like me. Okay, good. Stick with the stories, note taken. Stories are communicate truth best. So Jesus is hanging out with this Pharisee, Simon, and he had this huge party, and everyone that was anybody was there, and all of a sudden this woman comes in, and Simon says, hey, Jesus, what are you, why are you letting this woman cry on your feet and dry your feet with her hair? What's going on? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There were two men, and both of the men owned their manage, owed their manager money. One owed the manager $50, the other 500 And Jesus said the manager forgave both of them. Which one, which one loved him more? And Simon said, well, the man that owed 500. And Jesus said, yeah. Who much is forgiven, loves much. This is one of the most amazing pictures of the gospel. There's no other religion that works like this. The math doesn't pencil out in religion with a workspace. I do, therefore I get. He said, Simon, you like me, but she loves me. Because you think your sins are this much, and she knows her sins are this much. So, so when they experience my love, who do you think is going to be gripped more by my affection and my love demonstrated for them? It's interesting as we think about in our culture, in our world, we want to run away from this image that a, a just God can also be loving. And we see this this chart I put on your, your notes. It's in the app too. I think we might have a image to put on the screen, but it talks about the difference between legalism and liberalism and two heresies, and in the middle is the gospel. So we see legalism, God is holy, so it takes God's law. And then on the other side, liberalism, God is love, and the gospel we see God is both holy and loving. He's just and the justifier. So we see the next one, legalism says you go into guilt, work it off. Liberalism says go away from guilt, convince yourself you're okay. But the gospel says you go through guilt and you see you need Jesus. So you rest in Christ, that he paid the price. So it's a cool 
school chart you could go through and for life groups have some conversation about to help you see what, what this story illustrates. This TV host for BBC did a, was a religious reporter and, and said he grew up a Christian, but he always felt guilty. He always kind of that, that legalism. Hey, look at Jesus on the cross. You caused that. If you didn't sin so much, he wouldn't have to die. And he was always gripped with that guilt. And then he, he was really just felt bad about it because he said all they told us was, look how sinful you are. You made that happen. And one day he said to his therapist, he realized the only way he could feel confident and bold and get rid of the idea that he was a sinner was if he went to the liberal, that God is love. He doesn't need the cross. We don't need to talk about Jesus dying. He just loves and he'll just forgive, which is that horrible judge at the beginning of the message today. And so he's like, that's how I'm a good person, which he totally missed the whole point of the gospel. He missed that God is both holy and loving. That Jesus took our, pay, our punishment and paid our debt. Put it to you like this. Imagine you're about to lose your home because you're so far behind on the mortgage and someone just writes the check for the, the balance. $50,000 check. You feel guilty. You feel humiliated. How did I, all these foolish and dumb decisions, I got so behind, I couldn't keep up with the payments. And so in, in our Western mindset, it's like, no, I'm not going to take the check. I'm, I, it's my problem to solve. How foolish we feel. And, and that guy, Gerald, that's what he was saying. Why look at the cross? It's a terrible sight. I'm in debt. I owe this huge weight. I can't. I'm so in debt. I'm so guilty. And Jesus says, I, I paid the debt. Just take it. It's a free gift. Receive it. But yet in our world, we, we're like Simon, trying to earn it, work it off. Do we get it yet? When Jesus says, Simon, he who forgives little loves little. I can tell you the people who worship the best are the people who your whole life flashes before your eyes every time you're worshiping. And you see Jesus in the throne and your whole life and all the guilt. And Jesus says, what are you doing? I, I paid for all that. And yet, so often we're, we're looking to the right or to the left. We're, love, I'm just going to, I don't need to convince myself. I'm, I'm, I'm going to convince myself I'm good enough. I don't need... And there's just this noise that builds. Or we look to the experiences of, oh, I did this, I, I did that, I helped this person, I'm going to do this. And just the noise kind of builds. And, and it's interesting, you know, when you look at Scripture, you can, you can close this, and all of a sudden your movies, entertainment, cars, vacations, I'm going to do this, and kind of feel anxious maybe about certain things, or deals don't go quite as well, or job loss, and the noise just kind of there, and, and you're looking at, oh, hey, I'm kind of feeling that's, yeah, it's kind of messed up, Jesus had to die, I'm going to go talk to a counselor, oh yeah, you know what, I should just actually just say that didn't happen, and I'll be fine, I'll live however I want, whenever I want, and the noise just builds and builds, and even in my own mind, just thinking about random things, and all of a sudden you look back, and it's like, how much, what am I listening to, what's going on, why am I feeling this way, and to kind of illustrate, when when you put the headset on, it's so terrifying for me because I'm used to all the noise in that ADD, just crazy brain that never turns off. And yet you put that on, you hear, be still and know that I'm God. You just hear one voice. When you, when you just hear one voice, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and the sheep know my name, but how many voices are you allowing to, to speak? And you're like, wait, is, it, is this Jesus or is this 
Satan or is it me or is it the world and who's speaking and who's really guiding my steps here? And as we close, like I said, there's two things. Second, we need to continually look at the radical nature of what he has done for you on the cross. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The whole second part of this was talking about how in the first Adam was tempted and sinned and because he sinned, sin came in and death reigned. And it says in verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. It's all paid for. You've been declared just in God's sight. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So we see the word justified means more than to forgive. It means not less than that, but it means more. It means you're righteous in the sight of God. You're justified. You're perfectly legal, declared right. He's already done the hard thing. So judgment day is going to be a breeze. And we see the doctrine of the cross here that Paul's saying, look it, Adam brought in death, Jesus brought in life, therefore we can have joy and we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, character produces hope. There's a story I want to close with, the Pilgrim's Progress, in the middle beginning of it, it tells Christian who's a guy on a journey and he's looking for relief from the burden on his back, this giant burden of guilt, and he's trying to get it off his back, and he runs into this character, and there's characters that help and hurt him along his journey, and this one was Mr. Legality, and he tells him to climb the mountain of morality, and he says, if you get to the top of the mountain of morality, the burden will just fall off. It's awesome, and he's like, oh, finally, this burden of guilt is just too much. I got to get it off, and so he goes up, and it's funny because the higher he tries to go, the worse the burden seems to get. He says, you'd think as I'm climbing the mountain of morality, it would get a little easier, a little lighter as I do these good works and I get towards the top, but it's getting worse and worse and worse. And finally he comes to a hill and at the top of a, a hill is a cross and at the bottom of this hill is a grave. And just seeing the cross as he works step after step, easily making his way towards the cross, Fixing his gaze on the cross, the burden falls off and rolls downhill into the grave. He was amazed, the story says, that just looking at the cross would have removed that burden of guilt. The more he looked and the more he looked and the more he looked, the more he understood. And it says that springs in his head were loosed and water came down his face. He gave three jumps of joy and he sang, blessed be the cross, blessed be the tomb, Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. And we think about the cross. And we think about Jesus. The humiliation, the shame, fully human, knowing he didn't deserve it. And knowing we 
justifiably did in every way. And he said, then looking to today, saying, I know all the sin. I know all the guilt. I know all the shame. I know there's shortcomings and they're going to mess up tomorrow. And I know the only way is for me to choose self-substitution. I'm going to go to the cross for them. And it's so simple that just a little bit of noise distracts us from that. We can't hear it. Just a little bit of distraction. Hey, do this or do that. Hey, you need this. The enemy's so crafty. Hey, go up the mountain of morality. Do better things. Just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. Just listen. Put the headphones on and just listen to be still and know that I'm God. Believe and be saved. It's so powerful and yet we we quickly look to what we can do rather than what he's already done for you. And so I want to give this time as the elements are passed to think about for those that have yet to trust in Jesus, that simple invitation. Look at the cross. Focus on the cross. Realize at the cross you were declared just. God showed you his love for you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that when we suffer, we join with him in his suffering so that we might be saved. So as we offer that invitation, I'm going to invite you to come forward and let someone know, hey, God's working on my heart. I don't know if I'm fully there. I don't know what this is, but we want you to come forward. We can pray for you. So we're going to give you that time. We're going to give a little extended time. We're going to let you sit with the Lord now. I'm going to come up and close the communion time, and then I'm just preparing you. We're going to give you a minute before we do the last song, and you can come and receive prayer then. But don't be so rushed to leave what God's doing. Because now is maybe the only time the headphones have gone on in a while. And you're hearing God say, I love you. I know you messed up, but I paid for it. Be free from that guilt and walk with me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the demonstration that you chose willfully to come and die in our place. That you chose, knowing we didn't deserve it, knowing we could never earn it, that you chose to lay your life down, to pay the price, the ultimate sacrifice that we needed so that we might be forgiven, declared just, and restored back into a right relationship with you. That by believing we're saved, that we'd walk in that confidence, knowing at times the enemy might attack or our sin creeps in and we give in, that Lord, when we confess, you're faithful to forgive us of everything we say, think, and do. Lord, we pray for those that are feeling called and pulled and that they're seeing you for the first time and their need to believe and be saved, that they would trust in you, follow you, and that they would let us know so we could walk alongside them, Lord. And we... In- Invite those believers now, too, that are just maybe going through a tough season, need some encouragement or prayer, that we'd be reminded that we're not alone, that in Christ we boast, and and Lord, we delight that you have started the transformation through our forgiveness that we receive by believing and just simply receiving. May we continue to tune our ears into your voice and fix our eyes on the cross, reminded daily that we're your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.